the Q ratio, average convergence, divergence, basis points, and BS. Financial shows love to sound smart, but on Money Matters, we want to make you smart. That's why the goal is to keep you informed and empowered. Our focus? Providing clear, actionable advice without the financial jargon to help 1 million families retire sooner and happier. Based on the long-running WSB radio show, this Money Matters podcast is tailor-made for both modern retirees and those still in the planning stages. Join us in this exciting new chapter and let's journey toward a financially secure and joyful retirement together. Today, we're talking about the half a billion dollar pizza. Really, it was two pizzas, so each one was only around a quarter of a quarter of a billion dollars. We're going to get into that. Of course, brand new headlines this week with inflation. We'll cover those numbers. Is inflation moderating or not? What's that mean for 401k? Of course, and new approval. SEC approves Bitcoin ETFs. We'll talk about Bitcoin. It's in the news. SEC making it readily available in ETFs. A whole bunch of them were launched this week. And then, of course, the... The this is a crisis update from, or a world crisis update from Bank of America. They, which some of these are so so scary, they're almost slightly laughable. Bank of America talking about living in a world of perma crises or poly crises. Essentially, there's something bad happening all the time, all at the same time. Multiple bad things happening at the same time, but not here on Money Matters, because we're here in studio along with Jeff Lloyd. Thank you for being here, Jeff Lloyd. And we're rocking and rolling in the new year. Where do we start? Do we go golf, football, inflation, uh, world crises, or? I kind of know where I want to start. Where do you want to start? Can we talk about <laughs> Nick Saban retiring sooner? That makes me feel better after going over this poly crises list that the print is so small I can barely read it, but we're gonna get, we're gonna get to some of these. Well, I, here's a quick preview on this. We are overdue for a what a large volcanic event by how much? No, a mega earthquake. We mega are earthquake. we are overdue for a mega earthquake by over ten thousand years. All right. Well, that's just a preview to our list from Bank of America, looking at what could go wrong in the world, as though they needed to remind us. If you're an Alabama fan, maybe the, something did go wrong because Nick Saban, here's my thought around this. He retires sooner. Nick Saban retires sooner. Now, for the record, I'm not an Alabama fan. I've never lived in Alabama, didn't go to Alabama, uh, but I don't mind Alabama. I know that Georgia fans probably hate Alabama, but to me, they're just a good football team. The guy's one of the best coaches of all time, but he is retiring way sooner than his contract. So he's 17 years at 17 seasons at Bama, won what 201 games. And if I get any of these wrong, I'm sure I'll get hate mail from Alabama from the Crimson Tide folks. He tied with Vince Dooley, uh, tied for second with the most wins in SEC school history, trailing only Bear Bryant from Alabama with 232 wins, nine SEC championships, six national championships at Bama. One at LSU, coach at Toledo, then then Michigan State, then LSU, then the Dolphins, then the Miami Dolphins, and then to Alabama for the the amazing run that he went on there. Twenty eight years as a head coach, never had a losing season. 
Now, in 22, Saban signed a contract, of course, with the Crimson Tide, worth $93.6 million. That was a total deal scheduled run over eight years through 2030, meaning he had another approximate $72 million left on that contract. 70. So what is he doing, Jeff Lloyd? Talk about retire sooner. He's got $72 million on the table, and he's just walking away from it. I guess he just doesn't need it. Well, he's he's made over 120 million at Alabama already. So what you know, what's an additional 72 million? And that's just at Bama. So who knows exactly what he has squirreled away? Clearly, so is he going to be a happy retiree? That's the question. I, I think he is. I think he's gonna he's gonna find some core pursuits. And I did a little thinking of you know what are what's Nick he Saban's gonna be doing? Core, he's gonna spend some time at the lake. He's gonna spend some it's, time with the family. I hear he loves like pulling his like players and stuff. Um, in the tube? Skiing in a really? tube. Yeah. That's really? his, that's his thing. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And Good. this is, I've heard he has a place on Lake Burton. Is that, have you heard that? That's, too? that's what I've heard too. And apparently he, he bought a house down, uh, next to Justin Thomas somewhere in Florida. So he's got a Florida, he's got Lake Burton. I'm sure obviously Alabama place. So I, the one thing I do say, again, so he has all the money in the world, right? Plenty of money. He's way over the happy retiree median amount for the United States of America. I'm sure he has more than three income streams, three to four. He's got the, arguably the out, the state pension. Will he get a state pension? I think he'll get a pension. Obviously he has like endorsement deals. He's got, you know, had his contract. He owns some Mercedes dealerships. So that's some nice, that's a good, great income stream. Income streams for him. So the, I think the question, and this just goes for anybody that is has a job or a business that is so all-encompassing, and I and I think with college football, and this is probably why he's stepping away, it's such a full, full, full-time job. And now you've got the NIL deals, which make it, I think, a lot more difficult for coaches. Now you have the transfer portal, makes it a lot more difficult for coaches. So you're recruiting all, all the time, all year round. You're worried about losing players to go to the portal at some point, it seems like one of the, and then again, unless you're a national champion or a top, top team, then you're always on the hot seat. I think it's just a really tough job. Most, most coaches are always under the, the, the spotlight and not a great way. Yeah. I mean, normally they're under the spotlight and under the heat to perform 365 days a year. Actually, this year, it's 366 days. You do know that because you must have a leap year birthday. Are, is it? Are you just you, My daughter is close. She's February 27th, so. Well, he's got plenty of money. I think that he certainly will. I'm sure he'll get some core pursuits if he doesn't. I think he still does the Aflac commercials. Those are awesome. Him and Dion. Him and Dion. Him and Prime. Prime and that duck. <laughs> the duck and the buffalo. This is also... And again, you're you are you're you're a Auburn fan. Yes. Do you guys have a this this super rivalry with Bama? Yeah, I mean it it is. They they talk about Auburn and Alabama 365, 66 days, days a year, year. Okay. in the state of Alabama. All right, yeah. here's here's what was left on Saban's was it a statue? Oh, yeah. There's a statue of Nick Saban right outside the stadium. And I saw an article of all the different items that people were placing at the foot of the statue. Some some of these are, are crazy. Some of these make some sense. Little Debbie oatmeal cream pies. Who doesn't love those? Boxes of individually wrapped cookies. We get some bouquet of roses. 
I like this. Bottles of soda, including Coca-Cola bottles, you'd see on his press conference. He, he'd put those on the podium. Cans of Coors Light. I don't know what Four Loco, a can of Four Loco. I think it, it's a it's a energy alcohol drink. Energy alcohol drink. <laughs> Sounds safe. I don't know what yellow hammer cups are either. Yellow uh, hammer cups. That's a that's a popular drink in Tuscaloosa. A bag of ice, a slice of pizza, candles, a coffee mug that says world's best boss, identical to Michael Scott's on the office, a small pumpkin that makes a small pumpkin, a can of Arizona sweet tea, a bottle of Smirnoff ice. I love this. A Target gift card and a plastic gold crown because he is the goat greatest of all time. And and this a bucket of pickles. A bucket of pickles. Well, is that an Alabama? What's that about? I have no idea what the pickle thing is. Okay. Bucket. No it's clue. A, it's a, a bucket. bucket of pickles. Saban retires sooner. I think he's going to be okay, and I think he's going to be a happy retiree. Oh, I know what the pickles are. Yeah, I think it's a metaphor for the state of Alabama football and fans. They're in a pickle. Mm. They don't have a coach. Oh, That's what it is. In right? A you would in only a you pickle. Would figure that out. Speaking of sports and the business of sports and money, which again, I guess we're on this track here. We would be remiss if we don't talk about Tiger. Tiger and Nike split. This is a really interesting history. T Tiger Woods, I, producer Mallory, her eyes are what, what? And she doesn't even follow what she calls the sports. That's how much she's into this. But even she knows Tiger. They, they were together for 27 years. They first sponsored him back when he was still... I guess he was an he was an amateur, but it was when they first gave him, or he was twenty when they first signed. It was a forty only a forty million dollar deal, but then in two thousand he got a deal with Nike that was worth over a hundred million. That was the richest sponsorship deal for an athlete at the time, and over his tenure made over a half a billion dollars, five hundred million dollars with Nike. The, the the Nike has been in the golf business, but not really. They never really. I guess they've never really been, well, they're not, they don't make golf clubs anymore. So I went back and looked at that timeline. They've been in apparel for a long time. So since the 80s, 1984, in 86, they sponsored the UGA women's golf team. I think that was the first college team to do a deal with Nike. 93, they made their first golf shoe. 96, they, that's when they first signed a young Tiger for 40 billion. The 98, their first golf balls. Then they signed Tiger to the big time contract in 2000, and then in 2002 is when they started making Nike golf clubs. In, in 06, Nike Apparel became the number one brand in golf. And then in 2016, they stopped making golf clubs altogether because they weren't selling. So I, I've never had a pair of, I've never used Nike golf clubs. I mean, they, how bad, how could they really be that bad? I don't know, but you know, you're I've, a golfer. I've, yeah, I've never played you're with Nike. Golfer? I've, never, I've never played with Nike clubs, but I have lost a bunch of Nike golf balls. So for so to this day, as for golf, they're really just a golf apparel business, and they still sponsor golfers. I mean, Scotty Scheffler, Tony Finau, they, they sponsor Rory. The question that I've been getting this week: What's what's Tiger going to do next? What's he going to do next? And, and obviously no, nobody knows, but he just has such a big brand. A guy like that that's gone through so much in the press and he is so scrutinized that for him, I would think he'd probably just want to have his own his own brand, his own company, as opposed to being part of some other giant sports brand. 
It just see it seems like that would make sense yeah, to me. It, it, I, my bet is that he's going out on his own. Yeah, I mean Tiger Wood. Tiger is his own brand. Speaking of a slice of pizza and a bag of ice left for Nick Saban, along with the jar or the bucket of pickles, the announcement this week by the SEC to approve Bitcoin ETFs has is a really big deal. This is ten years in the making. This has been something that Wall Street has been knocking on the door to get they want they want regulation so they can have these products out there but the, the there was a, a little bit of a saga this week whether it was approved not approved ultimately the SEC approved bitcoin ETF so now very the accessibility to be able to participate in in bitcoin is just went up dramatically and it's much easier today to be able to just go buy an ETF like a stock ETF or a bond ETF or a gold ETF very easy to do at this point after this, after this past week, back in the day, as my kids would say, when Bitcoin was first around, it was of course not nearly as easy. If if you go and ninety four percent of cryptocurrency buyers are Gen Z and millennials, so it's a much younger audience. That's eighteen to forty year olds. If you're a Gen Xer, you may have some cryptocurrency, but if you're a baby boomer, you probably don't have a whole lot. Back when Bitcoin was still, this was brand new. This was back in 2010. And if you go, there are some charts you can find what it was trading at, but a couple cents per Bitcoin, you know, two cents, three, five cents, let's say. There was a guy named Laszlo Hanacek who used Bitcoin to buy two Papa John's pizzas. I have found an interview. I think Anderson Cooper did an interview with him many years later when it was obviously worth a lot more money than than two pizzas. But he used 10,000 Bitcoin to do it. He used 10,000 Bitcoin to buy two pizzas. Back then, it was he said it was worth 30 or 40 bucks. But today, of course, with the price of Bitcoin, let's call it hovering around $45,000, how much would that be, Jeff Lloyd? What would, be, what would 10,000 Bitcoin today would be worth how much? It, it, it'd be about... In U.S. dollars, American dollars. About 500 million. About four hundred, about, about almost half a billion dollars, four hundred fifty million dollars. That's how much the price has changed from twenty ten when it was brand new till essentially today. It really, and that's why it's caught our attention because it's such an astronomical rise. I mean, I almost I almost broke my HP twelve C financial calculator doing doing the math here. But you go from five cents to forty five thousand. What's the math on that? It's something like, and this is just rounding because these numbers, you, it's hard to even comprehend. It's something like a 90 million percent return, 90 million percent. But since 2011, and, and really I just looked at it from when it hit a dollar, which which it looks like from, in 2011, it hit, it, it hit a dollar for the first time. From a dollar to 45,000 is a four and a half million percent rate of return, 4.5 million percent rate of return. And of course, the, the first question Anderson Cooper asked him, aren't you mad at yourself that you never, that you spent that much? It could be worth so much money. At the time of the interview, it was something like it was still worth 80 million. Today's worth a half a billion. What's the reality of somebody that stumbled across or maybe accidentally mined the first handful of Bitcoin? It's digital, so you can't actually hold it in your hand. It's a, it's a digital currency. You can't see it. Can't hold it. Can't put it in your wallet. It's not physical. It's digital. What are the chances that if he had held it and it climbed to a million and five million and ten million and eighty and a hundred and four, that he wouldn't have sold it? 
that that's the question is that you you it's not even a fair story well, aren't you aren't don't you wish you would have held on to it and of course you're getting the answer of hindsight you're getting the benefit of hindsight of course wait a minute why why'd you why'd you waste it on a pizza it could be worth so much money today but you've got to look at the drawdowns and the volatility and there are this has been such an amazingly volatile asset it's again think of it as a currency it it's hard to really look at it as a currency because the price swings so wildly i mean there were some years it was $16 and then went back to $2. I mean, imagine how much volatility there is. We've seen it at 40 go down back to 20 and back to 40,000. It's, it's still, even though this has been around for call it over, well over a decade now, about a decade and a half almost, it's still hyper volatile. So it's still hard to think of it as a currency. It's really used as an investment or an asset class. But if you were holding this and it was up 2,000, 5,000, 100,000 percent at one point. The question is, what, what would you have sold it or not when it went down? And this is for the year in 2014, down 58 percent. Jeff Lloyd, would have sold it then? Wait a minute, I made so much. And then it was down almost 60 percent. 2018, it was down 73 percent. In 2022, it was down 65 percent. So it's been a indigestion is the wrong word. It's a hyper volatile. And that's why it's, it would be unrealistic for someone to just have ridden this thing out from five cents or 30 bucks, essentially to 450 million. Yeah. I, I think the chances of someone holding Bitcoin throughout all that volatility is pretty low. Like, he, pretty darn low. I don't think going from five cents even to a dollar to ten dollars to you know forty five thousand. I don't think our buddy the pizza guy would have held on to it that whole time. So, and again, this is newer for our show because we really this is this is just just happened this week. Now, I guess we're gonna have to look at this as an asset class, a little bit like a stock. So, just like we're not recommending individual stocks or ETFs, we're not recommending buying or selling Bitcoin. We just want to be really careful about that. and I, But I do want to answer the question because of, of, I've had lots of folks already asking, well, shouldn't we own some Bitcoin or should we own some Bitcoin? A couple of things. Well, let's just go through for those who are don't know the ins and the outs of Bitcoin. And I'm not going to pretend to be an expert about this, but I've studied this and read this for many years. Here's how I would explain it pretty simply. One, it is just it is supposed to be digital money. Really, it's a digital asset, but because you can transact in it, there are places you can pay, then you've got to call it a currency. You have to call it money. So let's first of all, it's it's digital money. And yes, you can still buy pizzas with it if you can find a place that'll take it. And there should only be 21 million total Bitcoins ever produced or ever mined. So they, it does have a, a finite supply. You do the math, 21 million times the, the price, let's call it a round number, $45,000 per Bitcoin. It's about a trillion dollars right now. That's the that's the marketplace. So it's massive. Two, what, what's really behind it are the infrastructure, the scaffolding, if you will, of what how it works. It's built on what, again, most people have heard of at this point, blockchain, blockchain technology, which is this special ledger that records every single transaction. When I was first trying to learn about Bitcoin, my best analogy to think of this was that it's a it's an exacting version of the game Whisper Down the Lane. So every single transaction gets recorded. And then 
the next Bitcoin is used, if you will, and then that new transaction gets tacked on to the existing ledger of all the transactions that it's already been through. So it's this exacting game, whisper down the lane, you kind of tend to lose the message from person to person. Eventually, hey, Jill ran to the farm, 10 people later said Jill was bought a tractor on the farm near the geese. Eventually things get changed, but not with the Bitcoin ledger, not with their immutable ledger that is blockchain. So that's how this, this work. Every time somebody uses Bitcoin, it gets written down in this giant digital notebook. Everyone can see it. And it's supposed to make it so that everyone can see where they're used. Three, how do you get Bitcoin? This is harder for, for me to even wrap my head around because I've never done this. But to get more Bitcoin, you can mine for Bitcoin, which is solving these algorithms, which also takes a lot of computing power. If you look at, Barron's did a great article just this week, this, last, this past week about their forecast for utility, for electricity use. And it wasn't Barron's, but it was in the article around the forecast over the past decade, electricity use has only gone up by about, it's actually a little less than a half a percent a year over the last decade. So we're using a little bit more electricity year after year after year. The forecast for uh, by the, the energy department is for 2% growth per year for the use of electricity. Immediately you think, well, where's all the new demand? That's gonna that's triple, quadruple the demand growth over the next call it decade or so. Where's it coming from? Immediately you think, oh, it's gotta be a, it's gotta be cars. It's gotta be electric vehicles. And of course, that is part of it. But what perhaps is an even bigger part of it is all the computing power that we need, the data centers that need electricity to run for artificial intelligence. And you've seen or we've heard of stories of these giant Bitcoin mining farms that take massive amount of energy or electricity to run computers to do Bitcoin mining to create more Bitcoin. So part of the energy use is that the world, think about a currency now transferring to a digital currency. How do you get it? You mine it. It takes a lot of electricity to do it. So thank Bitcoin for at least part of that. And then it's decentralized, which is maybe the the most interesting thing about it. There is no bank or there's no government in charge of it. It is decentralized. It means everyone participates in it and everyone that has it is an owner of that particular piece, but there's no one person or entity that's in control of it. So it is, there's no boss, it's decentralized. And again, we've, we've talked about the ultra volatility, I think is a really big part of this. There's, it's still a highly volatile asset. So if you think of this as a currency, the advent of now that it's much easier to buy in an investment account, in a, and who knows if this will be offered in 401ks. I bet you it probably will at some point. Little ETF options will enter into 401k plans. So you have this multi-trillion dollar market that's the retirement market in the United States. You could see a big rush of money go into Bitcoin, but it may actually dampen some of the volatility. Now that you've got many more buyers and sellers, and we could see over time it, it 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 gets less and less volatile, and eventually gets stable enough to to be used as a currency, which it was to some extent originally intended to do. And that's kind of the way I would think about what Bitcoin really is in the world we live in. That's a good point you bring out about stability. And one one thing I've kind of always asked myself or people I've talked to about cryptocurrency. If you're selling your house, are you going to accept Bitcoin as a form of payment 
for your house. A great way to look at it. And the answer is no way. I would never in a million years because you've got this big amount of money then it could you move by 10% in a day or a week. It's a lot, it's, it's not even close to being able to be a real currency, particularly for big purchases. That's a great way to look at it. More money matters straight ahead. Thinking about retirement in 2024? Well, you're not alone. And I've got just the thing to help guide you on your journey. What the happiest retirees know. My most recent book that shares the 10 habits of the happiest retirees meant to help you land at a place where work becomes optional. For a limited time, get 25% off at westmossbooks.com. Simply use the promo code OURTREAT, all one word, at checkout. That's westmossbooks.com. Interesting note about Vanguard. We were just reading through the break, Jeff Lloyd. What are they doing when it comes to... They are trading. banning all Bitcoin ETFs from their platform. I would I, make sense. I, I totally get that from coming from Vanguard. And the 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 other big question. This is affects us all. This is we in the outlook last week for 2024. We really kind of centered around. The, our themes for this coming year really have to do with hedging against inflation, protecting ourselves against inflation. That's a perennial thing for investors to do. We're always talking about protecting our purchasing power. It's every year we're thinking about that, but it's gotten some short shrift over the, until the last two and a half years because inflation went semi dormant for over a decade. Now it's back, went to over 9% and we have been watching that moderate and that is the big economic story of the last couple of years. Huge inflation meant the Fed would raise interest rates. And it think about what it, that has done. It's, it is, to the surprise of most economists, not really put us in recession. We had two quarters there where we were essentially just ever so slightly down. We never entered into an official recession. But here we are going from ultra low rates. We, you could refinance your mortgage at some at one point for under 3% to hitting 8%, it's had a giant impact on the housing market in more ways than we would have even thought. You would think right out of the gate, higher rates means, well, housing prices are going to come down, less people buying, reduce demand, the value of homes is going to have to fall dramatically. Ironically, that didn't happen at all because of this very unique scenario where we had this period of time where everyone could refinance. So the vast, vast majority of Americans that do own a home have low mortgage rates and they don't want to let that low rate go. So not so what what happened? The Federal Reserve knocked down demand because we had higher rates. I can't afford that payment. I could have afforded that house with a $1,500 payment, but not a $2,500 payment. That's how dramatic payments change due to interest rates or mortgage rates. But at the same time, the supply of homes going on the market dropped just as dramatically because people looked around and said, well, I, hey, honey, we can't sell. I don't want to get a 6%, a 7%, 8% mortgage. Uh, so it's, it, it's a, ironically, you had a giant drop in demand, but you also had a giant drop in supply of things going to the market. So hence, here we've seen housing prices continue to tick higher. Now, Arguably, the surge it seems well behind us. We had a massive surge. Clark Howard has been doing some great 
informational spots around the price of housing. Atlanta, over the last four years or so, up over 50%. It's one of the most expensive increases we've seen in the housing market in the entire United States. Clark says it's not hard for first-time homebuyers today. In wonderful Clark Howard fashion, says it's impossible for first-time homebuyers to buy a home. There's no way you can do it. And essentially, if you've heard what he's saying here on the air, is that maybe you should just wait until interest rates come down, mortgage rates get a little bit better, and then the the housing market might start to move a little bit. Maybe there's a few more things in the market, and your mortgage payment will be better if you're getting a place at five and a half or six versus seven and a half or eight. So the dynamics have all been around in how do we cure inflation? Fed raises rates has some really big impacts. It's also calmed down inflation. Thursday morning, Jeff Lloyd, inflation print, consumer price infl- consumer price index CPI was it, it was up three point four percent on a year over year basis. Three point four. It go back to the summer of twenty two. Was it over nine? So we've had a ton of progress from nine steadily coming down month after month, quarter after quarter, not in a perfectly straight line, but it's come down. We, we were at, at, at last month's report, we were annualizing at 3.2, it jumped to 3.4, but it's still much better than it's been. And if you really look at where we're headed likely this year, and again, who knows if this will play out, but we had a pretty darn good idea that we thought inflation would come down and that has played out. We thought, hey, hey, supply chain, supply chains get fixed, the monet, excess monetary stimulus gets worked through the system. We should see inflation come down, and that's that's exactly what's happened. We should also see inflation come down this year for one major reason, and that's housing, where we just talked about. What we have been able to see is that if you look at the housing market, remember within the CPI report, which is the Fed looks at, they look at two inflation measures. They look at PCE and they look at the CPI, the consumer price index. Within the CPI, a third of it, or a little bit more, a third of that calculation comes from shelter, your home. But guess what? It doesn't count home prices. What? How could that be? Well, they measure what you could, something they call owner's equivalent rent. So what could you rent your home for? And then they also look at some actual rental prices, and that goes all into the calculation. What we're seeing is a massive drop in where we see rental inflation. We've seen a ton of, we've seen market rents come down dramatically. It, a, it's because people are buying less houses and saying, oh, I've got to rent. So we've seen an acceleration in places getting built. So there's no more supply. So that's helped calm down rental prices. If you go back to April of 2022, rental in, rental price increases were 15, 20%. I was hearing some stories of 50%. Landlords saying, you're at a thousand bucks. I want you to be at 1500. That's a 50% increase. So that's come back down, not back to zero, but the year over year change, what we're seeing. And there's a couple of different measures on this. One is Zillow that I liked, observe rents. And we look at that relative to where the rest of inflation is. We're, we're seeing, we should continue to see arguably a third of the CPI number actually go down over the course of the next year. So when you hear the inflation number that was at nine, that was at six, that was at 3.4 as it is today, how does that drop below two? A lot of that could be housing. Of course, we could see a moderation in energy prices still, but a lot of that is probably 
already baked into the cake to some extent. Now, that could change. But if things continue on from here, that in itself is going to really bring down that CPI number. And what does that do? That gets the Fed to their target. And if you get the Fed to their target, they've already said, we don't think we need to raise rates anymore. They could actually start cutting rates at least a little bit. So that's where we are today. If we, if we were to take a look at what the inflation numbers really look like over the past year, where have we seen deflation? Well, we've seen, we, again, still sticky. When you hear sticky, these are prices that haven't quite come down yet. Housing's the best example of that. The OER number, the owner equivalent rent still hasn't come down. Still pretty darn expensive to buy and to rent, but we know that's moderating. But we've seen some places where prices have actually dropped. That would be deflation. And if you look at the cost of food, that's one area we've really seen some real moderation. One, the price of eggs. Remember, CNBC had a whole tab for eggs. Yeah, they had like the little egg price ticker at the bottom. Tracking on, eggs. on the bottom line. Tracking, Tracking egg prices. The articles about why are egg prices so high? Eggs, apples, lettuce. These are staples, and particularly for the New Year's diet. Eat eggs, eat apples, eat lettuce. You're in pretty good. That's 2024 New Year's resolution. That's, that's eating healthy in the new year. Fuel oil down pretty dramatically over the past year. Utility gas, gasoline, these are numbers that have come down dramatically. How about some of these other service areas? Uh, airline tickets down pretty dramatically. Car rental prices. And that one does make some sense. Remember, I remember two, two or three years ago when it was hard to even get a rental car. Remember that? So you think of it, just think about how, bun it's a great example of a, I don't know if you call it, that's a supply chain issue. You just couldn't get enough cars into the fleet to get them onto the lot to be able to be rented. And even because you had a big slowdown in travel, wait, we don't need any cars. So you had this giant grenade went off in every single little industry and just dis disrupted it. So you had this six month period of time where it was hard to get a rental car. So when you could, it was super expensive. That's way moderated. I've rented a car over the holidays. There were five to pick from. And this was a little one of these little Michigan car rental places. It wasn't like a big, it wasn't even in an airport. Plenty of supply. The price was actually pretty reasonable. So, but it's it's supply chains to some extent normalizing. It doesn't take five months like it used to to get goods from one country to the other. That's gotten better because of co the, the impacts of COVID and the pandemic have gotten better. So you've seen some moderation. We've seen, though, a, a decrease in TVs, a decrease in prices for computers. So there, there, are, there are a lot of these pretty big categories that have been going down and getting cheaper, not just not getting more expensive. And, and that's why we're now, we're just waiting for that to happen when it comes to shelter. Yeah, I got to tell you, one of the things that feels pretty good is pulling up to a gas station now and filling mm -hmm. up for even sub $3. If you think about the summer of 2022, we saw, according to AAA, the highest price for gas ever in entire history. Right. That was, if you go back, if I look at a peak here, and this is from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, you can look at different charts of kind of the main core area. So think food, uh, food at home, and then food away from home. Those are two huge categories for Americans. Energy, giant category. Then you have core goods. Think retail apparel. Think cars, et cetera. In fact, used cars have declined significantly. Housing, which obviously is still an issue. And then looking at services. 
some of these categories have gotten back to kind of close to the flat line. No, very little inflation year over year. But I would say that the other big decline that we've seen, if you go back to somewhere in the spring, summer of 2022, oil was at $120 a barrel and gasoline hit. Yeah, gasoline hit over $5 for the average price of a gallon of gas in the U.S. That's come all the way back from 120 all the way down to around the 70 range today. So that's why in these inflation calculations, a big reason we've seen it come back down closer to the Fed's 2% target has to do with many of the big categories getting back closer to zero or one and something like energy really net negative along with that list we just talked about apples, lettuce, airline tickets. Apples, lettuce, and airline tickets. And eggs. And eggs. Actually declining. Wes, what are you talking about? We just spent the last five minutes talking about how inflation was coming down. I thought you said inflation was going up. Wait, wait, where are we? Here's what we're saying. And this is, I think that this is where the media gets it wrong. And it's not really their fault because they're not saying it incorrectly. But- when they say the inflation rate has come down and it gets to, let's call it, let's say it gets down to two. Is that cause for celebration? Well, that's just the the amount that it's increasing over the past year. It doesn't have, it doesn't do anything to help with all the inflation we've already had. And even though I do think we're getting back to, we could see 2% inflation there this year, but it's still 2% on top of the pile of inflation that we've already had. And we think the headwinds, they're, well, they're tailwinds for higher inflation because we still have deglobalization, which is a big change that we've had over the last several decades. We have reshoring, onshoring. We have a sentiment in the United States and really around the world of, hey, let's bring things back to the United States. Let's choose security over lower costs. Let's bring things back here and back home. And that in itself should keep inflation higher over the next, call it decade, than we experienced from the 07 to 2022. So even though we're debating why we think inflation is going to return back to 2%, that's just for this year. And that doesn't help all the inflation that we've seen over the last, call it three years. Remember, I think the chart that we we need to look at as investors, and remember, we talked about this last week, we had a 12-year span where inflation was only up 18% cumulatively, total, over 12 years. That was from 08 to 2022, or 2020. Then the pandemic hit, supply chain disruptions, a wash and tsunami of money from the Federal Reserve and and the government, which then rocketed inflation up over 20% in just three years. So yes, we think we're going to get back to a more, we're not going to be in that 7, 8, 9% level, but could we get back to two and then hover in the two to three, maybe 4% over the next several years? That's what we're thinking. And that's why I think it's so important to continue to hedge ourselves against inflation. Speaking of inflation baskets, Jeff Lloyd, we always, I know you do these custom baskets that are so great. This is your New Year's, well, not New Year. This is your January Resolution basket. This is is our resolution basket. Here on Money Matters, we love a little thematic basket, right? So, what are your, what are your, we took the inflation numbers that came out this past week and we made a little just basket of resolutions. All uh, right. Basket of inflation. So, we got food at home. Yep. Okay. New Year's resolution, we're going to eat more at home. 
up 1.3%. It's on my list. Hey, non-alcoholic beverages. You've heard of dry, dry January. January. We're taking a break. Yeah. Up 2.6%. Mm-hmm. Housekeeping supplies. Do a little deep clean in the house. Up 2.8%. I don't know if it's a new year thing, but I'll give it to you. I think okay. it's more of a what, spring what, thing. What was spring. one of your resolutions? To read more? To read a lot more this year. And not just financial news, but other content besides financial. Recreational books down 1.1%. Okay. All right. How about getting shape? Getting shape. Okay. New year, new me. I'm going to exercise <laughs> more. Sporting goods down 2.5%. So the total basket? 1.7%. That's actually half the rate of inflation we just saw. Just worked out magically for you. I love that New Year's resolution. And it's an inflation-proof list. Love it, Jeff Lloyd. More Money Matters straight ahead. We're going to have to talk about this Bank of America report that you found this week that I guess it's really not that scary because a lot of these things we either know about, we live with, or Hollywood's already made a movie about. And these are essentially looking at the fragility of the world and the theme around, or our theme for the year, of course, is a whole new world. Genie's out of the bottle with inflation. Interest rates are higher. We have artificial intelligence. None of these things are going back in the bottle. So it's a, it is a whole new world we need to navigate. From the B of A report, it's a, it, they might as well title, they didn't title it this, but I would call it a whole new scary world, according to B of A. And what, what struck me is the thought around that we are living in a period of perma-crises or poly-crises where there's just continuous instability and security. There perma-crises and poly-crises. The 2022 word of the year for a particular dictionary was perma-crisis. And, and then we're living in these together. So you think of Brexit and COVID and climate disasters and inflation and the, and the rising cost of living all at the same time. We're we're living with concurrent issues. So the question then is acknowledging them and understanding that, of course, we, there are always risks to the world that we live in. And then, of course, that, that impacts markets. It impacts our 401ks. And, it's inter- and this is also why we invest not just for the future for growth, but we invest for stability as well. One of the themes for this year is that even though it's been not, not necessarily good for consumers and terrible for homeowners or those who are looking to purchase a home. Higher interest rates also means higher interest rates on the bonds that we're able to own. So fixed income for safety and stability that you're going to want. So, so for investors that aren't willing to have 100% in equities or in stocks because they don't like that much volatility, pairing that with something more stable can keep the entire portfolio the volatility dampened. So we go through what Bank of America goes through. Here are two kinds of risks. You've got the the gray swan, or I guess, or the gray, the, they call them gray swans and or gray rhinos, which are pretty rare. These are known unknowns, unlikely, but they do have a major impact and we've seen them and we, we know that they happen. So, so in this category, these are the gray swans, they call them, extreme weather, Cybergeddon, super bug resilience, wildfires, and job automation. Those are all things that kind of happen all the time. They're all terrible, but when you when you get a hurricane that hits a, an island or a coast, it's devastating. 
if you have a, we've seen some periods where we have maybe not cybergeddon, but we have big outages when it comes to the internet or particular companies get hacked and they don't work uh, for a period of time. We've already read and heard about bug resilience or antibiotics not working. And every year it seems as though the West is plagued by wildfires. And then of course, automation. So we're nervous. There's a, there's a lot of nerves around artificial intelligence. One of the things that we can't put back in the genie's bottle is potentially going to accelerate job automation. It used to be worried about robots taking my job. Now it's not just robots, but it's robots plus artificial generative intelligence taking a job at the same time. Now the scarier list, and these by Bank of America are considered black swans or unknown unknowns, extremely rare, massive impact, not just big impact. And that would be things like and again, some of these are, are really for the movies and not something that we've experienced, but bioweapons, solar flare, solar flare. I think we've mentioned this is a something we've talked about last year on, on one Sunday morning where a solar flare could actually knock out communications and electricity. So the huge deal. Imagine the, the West Coast or all of the U.S. didn't have electricity for X period of time. Uh, mega quakes. So you've got mega earthquakes, mega volcanoes. According to, I think you have a correction, please, here on yeah, Money Matters. Yeah, what are we, we're, on, we're here on, for the facts. On, on Money Matters, we fact check, and I misspoke, and I may have actually yeah, scared did. some of our listeners because I said that we were 10,000 years overdue for a mega earthquake. That's Wrong. scary. What I meant to say is that we are 10,000 years overdue for a mega volcanic eruption. Got it. Thank you for that So just wanted to put our listeners at ease. Thank it's you. not an earthquake. It's a volcano. Okay. Thank you for the clarification. Yeah. Again, movies have been made or documentaries about all of these. No, no, yeah. No, literally Hollywood has made a movie on all these black swan events. Here's number four. The, is, number four is asteroids. Number five on this is a Bank of America report around glo global threats threats to the world instability this is not this is not us this is and this is not a fly by night company this is b of a number 4 on the list asteroids number 5 aliens on their list and 6 ai singularity which is a, a more advanced form of automation Me, well actually no no ai singularity really means it's it's ai growing so much that then it becomes uncontrolled and it essentially takes over for humans. Elon Musk has been worrying about that. He's there are there are there's a growing body of folks within technology that are that worry the generative AI could just not just take our jobs but but take over. So again, this is not our list, but these are all things that could happen. And Hollywood's made a movie about all of them. Of course, we have alien movies, asteroid movies. Independence Day, one of the best asteroid movies of all time, Bruce Willis and Steve Buscemi, Liv Tyler. It's not Independence Day. It's actually the movie's Armageddon. Wonderful film. Now, in the end, we figured out a way to not have the asteroid hit. Yeah, Hollywood even made an AI movie. Do you remember that one? It was literally called was Artificial that, Intelligence. Was that AI. with Scarlett Johansson? I can't remember. Um, Haley Joel Osment was in mm, it. Do you remember, remember that, that one? Well... These are all, we, we can visualize all of this because we've seen it in the movies. Here's, here's maybe a more realistic fear. This is a more realistic enemy that we're going to have to 
overcome. This is something that we really should be worried about, but we also can can to, to some extent combat, and that's that's inflation. And we've been it's been target economic target number one for the last two and a half years now. We've seen some improvement in the rate of inflation, but certainly not the 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 pile of inflation that has happened already. That's not going away. The good news is if you look at financial assets, so if you've been an investor, if you've been putting money into your 401k, you've been investing in a brokerage account in some way, it's very likely that over the past three years, when we have seen that crazy 20% inflation, most equity asset classes, whether you look at energy pipeline companies, even real estate that hasn't done all that well, publicly traded real estate, has, has almost has matched that, largely matched that amount of inflation. And then markets, whether you look at growth stocks or value stocks, the S&P 500, they've outpaced that inflation rate pretty sizably. So that's what we know we're going to be faced with. Yes, you can stay up all night and worry about black swans and gray swans, but the reality here is that we... The, the target that we know is coming for us is inflation, and we can we can do something about that. The If it comes to some of these really scary Hollywood-type events that could hit the world, in some respects, there's not a whole lot we can do. Uh, if, if this asteroid one comes true, a, a one-kilometer-wide asteroid, I mean, I don't know. Good, good luck. I don't know what, what's working in that scenario. <laughs> I don't know. They have a show for that called, uh, is it Doomsday Preppers? Like preparing for invasions and volcanoes you and live the, in, the end of times. You'd be wanting right? to live in a bunker. So inflation is target number one. It's moderating, but we still need to hedge against it. There's n new developments this week with improved regulatory approvals for a, another really hot topic in the headlines over the last several years. And that's been cryptocurrency, specifically Bitcoin, which is now been approved to be in exchange-traded funds. As of this past Thursday, 11 of them were ready to go and in the marketplace, and I'm sure we'll see more. That's just the beginning. This is that was on the first day. So we're going to see more of that. I personally, we don't know the dynamics of, of cryptocurrency. It's supposed to be a currency, but it's really been utilized as a financial asset to invest in. And it's just, it's not something that that I feel comfortable with. I think that there is great FOMO around, hey, I, I don't want to miss out though. It went from five cents to a thousand and then it went from a thousand to 10, then went from 10 to 45,000. My goodness, I feel like I missed out. And then I hear predictions that it could go to a million. And then you hear predictions it could go to zero. There's just this tug of war that does with your psyche. That's just not a tug of war I want to be a part of. It also excludes the thought that there are lots of other places to invest. When you're looking at a particular asset and you, it gets lots of press and there's lots of shiny lights on it, you, you start asking yourself, well, should I own it? Should I, yes or no? Should I have it or not? That's just only part of the answer. What else should I have instead of it? And that I think can put people to ease. And that, that's how I look at it is that Yes, it's tempting. You th you hear forecast that it's going to go to the moon, and you think, well, there's no real backing to this. There's no fundamental value to this. Warren Buffett says that he would never invest in it ever. No, I, I, I'm okay not owning it because I've got what I think are other hedges against inflation. Dividend, 
paying stocks. Jeff Lloyd, you pulled a phenomenal chart this week. Yeah, so the chart goes back 150 years, and it measures uh, annualized dividend growth starting in 1870 and compares that against what the average inflation has been during that same time period. Okay. So you got inflation averaging 2% per year over the course of the last 150 years. You had dividend growth. The growth of the the dividend. Not just dividend at 3.7%. So that's almost almost double the rate of inflation over a 150-year time period. So just the cash flow that gets paid out from individual companies within the S&P 500 cumulatively together, it's not just, it's ratcheted higher. You don't hear about it a lot. It's not a big news. It's not a fancy news story. When was the last time you heard heard an anchor say, what's your forecast for dividend growth in 2023, in 2024, in 2025? Well, Joe, I'm thinking it could be as high as four and a half percent. Yeah, I don't, that's not I, a news story. I don't think I've ever seen a headline that says dividends grew last year. Dividends set to grow in 2024. It's not a forecast you're going to hear, but it's a very important one for your 401k, and that's what we're here to continue to wrangle. What could be a very spread out herd of cattle all over the place? We want to corral that. Let's make smart decisions, fundamental decisions over long periods of time. And I think that gives us a great shot, Jeff Lloyd, at outpacing target number one. It's not a solar flare. It's inflation. That is a perennial issue for for investors, protecting purchasing power. We want to do it in a lot of different ways. Income investing. What is that? It's ways it's putting together a retirement plan and portfolio that generates income from lots of different sources, dividends, interest, distributions. Those all add up to what we call portfolio yield. It's a cash flow. And although that's only a part of the equation, the full equations, total return equals growth plus income, we can get pretty close to what our income is going to be. A lot of that is 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 dictated by where interest rates are. We know with bonds, quote, yield is destiny to some extent. We also know that dividends, Jeff Lloyd, you pointed out, have over time tended to rise almost at double the rate of inflation. So we've got some income from stock dividends, bond interest, distributions from other areas. And then couple that with some appreciation over time. We don't know when that's happening at any given point. That's how we get our total return. But income investing is at least controlling the income part or the cash flow part when it comes to investing, which is particularly important when you are in retirement and you need to start living on the money that you've saved. When you're younger, if you're in the crowd that is 94% of folks that own cryptocurrency or Gen Z and millennials, you still, in my opinion, you still want to own, be an investor and own stocks, but you don't need the income. You reinvest and you reinvest and you reinvest. With that, again, you can find our team at yourwealth.com. That's Y-O-U-R, yourwealth.com. Have a wonderful rest of your day.
This is provided as a resource for informational purposes and is not to be viewed as investment advice or recommendations. This information is being presented without consideration of the investment objectives, risk tolerance, or financial circumstances of any specific investor and might not be suitable for all investors. The mention of any company is provided to you for informational purposes and as an example only and is not to be considered investment advice or recommendation or an endorsement of any particular company. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. There is no guarantee offered that investment return, yield, or performance will be achieved. The information provided is strictly an opinion and for informational purposes only, and it is not known whether the strategies will be successful. There are many aspects and criteria that must be examined and considered before investing. This information is not intended to and should not form a primary basis for any investment decision that you may make. Always consult your own legal, tax, or investment advisor before making any investment, tax, estate, or financial planning considerations or decisions. Investment decisions should not be made solely based on information contained herein.